We had arrived at a first plateau, where further surprises awaited me. Here, picturesque ruins stood up, bearing the mark of man's hand and not that of the Creator. Captain Nemo came close to me and stopped me with a sign. Then, picking up a chalky piece of stone, he went up to a rock of black basalt and wrote a single word, Atlantis. This is a passage from Jules Verne's classic book, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It helped re-spark the imagination of the 19th century public and beyond about the legend of Atlantis. Since Jules Verne's mention of the mysterious Atlantis, there have been numerous articles, books, documentaries, and even a movie exploring the myth of this lost city. The discussion includes a contentious debate about whether Atlantis actually existed, and if so, where it might be. Most scholars and historians agree that the Atlantis story was an allegory invented by Plato in ancient Greece. But many amateur archaeologists have devoted a great portion of their lives searching for the city that sank into the sea overnight. And some of them believe they might have found it. If they're right, then why has Atlantis been called a myth for so long? And who's been keeping it secret? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories on the Parcast Network. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events in search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. In the next two episodes, we'll be exploring the legend of Atlantis and the conspiracy theories surrounding the rumored existence of the mythical lost continent. Officially, Atlantis does not exist and never has existed. However, it occupies a unique space in folklore and today, We'll examine the myth of Atlantis, looking for clues that it might be more than a myth and part of a centuries-old conspiracy. In modern-day pop culture, Atlantis takes on a sort of magical, futuristic quality. It's the namesake of cruise ships, island resorts, and even a NASA space shuttle. But the legend actually began around 340 BC, with one of the most influential figures of Western philosophy. Plato. Plato was born around 420 BC in ancient Greece. He introduces the legend of Atlantis in his little-known works Timaeus and Critias. Timaeus and Critias are not an easy read. According to philosophy professor Brian Johnson, the dialogues are Plato's 
attempt to give a theological account that provides something like that geometric logic of nature. In other words, Plato is trying to make sense of a chaotic world and use a single theory to explain, well, everything. And it creates a bit of a convoluted, messy work. Many modern academics view the legend of Atlantis as a tool Plato uses to explain his idea that a perfect form of government cannot be sustained. Human institutions will always eventually become corrupted and fail. Plato is known to use myths and allegories in his works, so this wouldn't be unusual. But what many people claim is unusual about Timaeus and Critias is the number of times Plato remarks that the story of Atlantis is true. If he intended this story to be read as a fictional allegory, why did he go through so much effort to make it appear historically accurate? To answer that, we have to understand a little more about Plato's writing style. He would commonly frame his philosophical works as fictionalized conversations between real historical figures to create a dialogue about the lesson he was teaching. Plato's dialogue, Timaeus, follows that pattern, beginning with a fictional conversation between Socrates, Timaeus, Critias, and Hermocrates. Socrates, Critias, and Hermocrates are all definitely real people whom Plato adopted as characters for his story. Plato also claims that Timaeus of Locri was a real philosopher, but if he did exist, he never appears in the historical record anywhere except in Plato's dialogues. In ancient times, it was universally accepted that Timaeus was real, but modern scholars generally agree he was a character completely invented by Plato. The line between fact and fiction is only going to get murkier from there. Within Plato's dialogue, Critias tells a story he supposedly heard from his grandfather, who, in turn, heard it from Solon. Solon is also a real historical figure who was a revered Greek academic and statesman. For a point of reference, he died in 558 BC, a little over 100 years before Plato was born. In around 600 BC, Solon took a trip to Egypt, which is pretty well documented within ancient Greek history. According to Plato's dialogue, during that trip, Solon visited a temple in Sais. The priest there told him a story about his powerful ancestors, the ancient Athenians. The Egyptian priests explained to Solon that the Greeks had lost millennia of their own culture's history due to a cycle of natural disasters, which completely destroyed Greek cities. Egypt, however, was spared these natural disasters, so they had records of events the Greeks had completely forgotten. The priest told Solon about a time 9,000 years earlier, when the Greek city of Athens was a truly great power. Around that time, an arrogant and powerful nation called Atlantis threatened to invade the Mediterranean. The Athenians fought bravely and were able to force Atlantis' army to retreat. As Plato writes, the Athenians valiantly saved those within the boundaries of Heracles. The Pillars of Heracles refers to what we now call the Strait of Gibraltar, the skinny body of water connecting the Mediterranean Sea to the Atlantic Ocean. The implication, then, is that Atlantis lies outside the boundaries of Heracles, somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. The Egyptian priests explained that after Atlantis retreated, 
Earthquakes and floods hit the entire region. The story reads, quote, And in a single day and night of misfortune, all your warlike men in a body sank into the earth, and the island of Atlantis in like manner disappeared in the depths of the sea, end quote. A few key details from this story have been aggressively researched in the search for Atlantis. Now, the first point of contention is the date, 9,000 years ago. Now, the oldest known civilizations are dated around the 3000 BC era. If Plato's date was correct, that would mean that there was an advanced culture living 6,000 years before the earliest evidence we have of human civilization. Scholars usually point to this discrepancy as evidence that the story is fictional. And if what we've heard about Atlantis so far seems within the realm of historical possibility, Plato's second dialogue, Critias, paints a picture of Atlantean civilization that sounds much more myth than fact. The Critias dialogue focuses on the mythical origins of Atlantis and what the island was like before it disappeared under the sea. Plato's character Critias explains that Atlantis was ruled by the Greek god Poseidon. He married a mortal named Cleito, and she lived on a hill at the center of the island. In the plains that surrounded the hill, Poseidon created cold and warm water springs to make sure his progeny never suffered for water. Elephants roamed the massive plain, which was 230 miles in width. The plains were surrounded by mountains, which protected Cleito and her descendants from the harsh north wind. Poseidon also created five perfect circles around the hills, alternating between land and water in a sort of bullseye fashion to protect against invaders. The two outermost rings of water and land were each about three stades at their widest point. The middle two rings were two stades wide, and the final ring of water around the hill was one stade wide. The stade is an ancient unit of measurement that continues to boggle modern scholars. It's generally agreed to equal about 600 feet, but some ancient writers used the term to refer to distances of 300 feet. If we assume one stade equals 600 feet, the total diameter of the island of Atlantis would be over 400 miles across, surrounded by another mile of circular rings. Well, for reference, that's more than twice the size of the largest Greek island, Crete. This massive size suggests the island's description is symbolic instead of historically accurate. Maybe, maybe not. Well, moving on, during Poseidon and Cleito's marriage, she bore five sets of twins, all sons. As the sons became men, Poseidon distributed the land equally between the ten princes, with the oldest receiving the central hill. His name was Atlas, and the empire took his name, becoming Atlantis. At this point, Poseidon deemed Atlantis the perfect society. The government was ruled peacefully by the ten princes, and as time progressed, by ten descendants of the original rulers. The leaders met every fifth and then sixth year to discuss matters of state. They would begin these meetings by capturing and slaughtering a bull and offering it up as a sacrifice to Poseidon. After the sacrifice, the leaders pledged they would never attempt to overthrow each other, and if one did, the others would all rally together to defeat the mutineer. But even though Atlantis grew prosperous and strong, 
The prince's link to Poseidon weakened over the generations as they married mortal women. After a while, their actions became more human and less godly. Eventually, Zeus, the leader of the gods, was so displeased with what Atlantis had become that he came down from Mount Olympus to Atlantis to confront them. Plato writes, quote, Zeus had gathered them together, he said. And that's it. The open-ended, he said, are the last two words of Plato's dialogue. The ultimate cliffhanger. But is the story unfinished, or is the abrupt ending part of Plato's lesson? Plato went on to write other works after this one, so perhaps he was planning to circle back and continue the story at a later date. Or maybe he felt he had said enough already. No one really knows. But what we do know is that these 50 pages ignited a 2,000-plus year debate about whether Atlantis is real or not. During ancient times, many people accepted the story as truth, whether Plato intended it to be read that way or not. Even in more recent eras, some people point to the exactness of the details Plato uses to describe Atlantis as proof that the legend had a historical basis. On the other hand, scholars argue that the improbable measurements Plato uses are actually an argument for Atlantis being a metaphor. For one, the island Plato describes is twice the size of Crete. If an island that large had suddenly sunk into the sea overnight, there would most likely be some mention of it in the historical record. It's worth mentioning that Plato was a great admirer of the ancient Greek mathematician Pythagoras. Pythagoras had a sort of cult following in ancient Greece, and scholars argue that the numbers in the Atlantis story held a symbolic significance within Pythagorean geometry, something any of Plato's students would have understood. For example, the leaders of Atlantis met every fifth and sixth years. In ancient Greece, the mixing of odd and even numbers could represent the impureness of Atlantis as it was led astray from Poseidon. We'll get into these debates more deeply next week, but the takeaway is that even the most official story of Atlantis is open to interpretation. In just a moment, we'll look into how that interpretation has shifted throughout history. Now, back to the story. In ancient times, many Greek and Roman philosophers idealized Plato. His word was revered, and in the centuries after his death, many of his legends were accepted as truth, including the story of Atlantis. Pliny the Elder, a first-century Roman historian, wrote, quote, The island did sink, if we are to believe Plato, end quote. But when the Roman Empire fell in the 5th century, the legend of Atlantis also fell into obscurity. It wasn't until the 12th century, when Europeans began to travel for trade, that tales about a lost island began to resurface in the public consciousness. In the 15th century, exploration turned to the Americas. When sailors returned from the New World, they would tell the tale of a city on an island that sparkled with an abundance of gold. On the maps in 1475, this island was labeled Atlia, or the West Indies, but the rumors called it Atlantis. The centuries-long search for a sunken island full of gold began. 
But one man who had a major influence on the Atlantis legend didn't cross the ocean for gold, but for God. In 1550, a missionary named Diego de Landa traveled to the Yucatan to convert the Mayan people to Christianity. The Maya were in power in modern-day Mexico. They had interconnecting cities, wondrous temples, and a complicated written language system comprised of hieroglyphics. De Landa lived with the Maya and studied their culture and complex rituals, but he was the most interested in their religion. The Mayan priest influenced almost every aspect of Maya daily life, and as a Christian missionary, Delanda wasn't thrilled about their influence. Delanda noticed that the most prized possessions of the Mayan priests were their beautifully painted books. To undermine the priest's influence and weaken the general morale, he had the books burned. A few of these books did survive, but only because Delanda was intent on translating them into Spanish. He thought he'd discovered the translation key, which he included in his book, An Account of the Things of Yucatan. Delanda's book, which was drawn from both oral histories and the text he translated, reported that the Maya had advanced knowledge of astronomy and were able to anticipate certain weather events. He wrote that the Maya were descended from a civilization in the east, and after their homeland was destroyed in a flood, God opened up 12 paths through the sea, Moses-style, and delivered them to the Yucatan. Delanda concludes, quote, If this were true, it necessarily follows that all the inhabitants of the Indies are descendants of the Jews. An ancient, technologically advanced people whose civilization had been destroyed in a flood. The connection to Atlantis seems obvious, but there are a couple issues to discuss. The first is the important phrase, quote, if this were true. Delanda wasn't expressing his opinion that the story was true. He was simply relaying an oral history he'd been told. Secondly, the translation key that Delanda thought he had was not actually accurate. Later attempts to translate the text using his key resulted in incomprehensible gibberish. And the few Mayan texts he so graciously didn't burn have still not been translated to this day. So wherever Delanda was getting the story, it wasn't from the Mayan holy books. And while Delanda is credited with giving historians much of what is currently known about Mayan life, he also laid the groundwork for the theory that most of their culture was not their own. This is called hyperdiffusionism, which is defined as a suggestion that certain historical technologies or ideas originated with a single people or civilizations before their adoption by other cultures. In layman's terms, it's the idea that advancements like astronomy and written language all originated in one place, in this case, Eastern Europe, and were later spread to other civilizations, in this case, the Maya. The implication is that the Maya couldn't have possibly created their own advanced culture. It must have come from an ancient European culture. Obviously, there's some racism at play here. Modern-day scientists have concluded that the Maya culture is, in fact, their own, and they did not bring it over from Europe or the Egyptians. Unfortunately, this idea of hyperdiffusionism became a driving factor in future Atlantis theories. As explorers like Delanda came back with information about the New World 
accurate or inaccurate, maps changed to account for the new continents to the west. But the map makers didn't always travel themselves, and they changed their maps based on sailors' accounts. And the sailors were whispering about Atlantis. A map in 1718 actually suggests that the entire continent of North America could be Atlantis. The legend of Atlantis was becoming more ingrained in Western popular culture, and it was also becoming more and more fantastical. It was about to get another boost of intrigue with the help of Sir Francis Bacon. Bacon is remembered primarily as a scientist and philosopher. Voltaire declared him the father of the scientific method, which highlights observations and skepticism. Ironically, Bacon would also become the father of the most fanciful and unscientific of Atlantis conspiracy theories. In 1627, Bacon published his utopian novel, The New Atlantis. The story begins with a ship sailing from Peru to China. It veers off course and lands on a mysterious island called Bensalem. The sailors are greeted by a colony of Christians whose ancestors immigrated from the original Atlantis after it was destroyed by a great flood. The colony's culture honored both science and God, and in doing so, they became much more advanced than the rest of the world. Bacon paints a picture of an island with cures for every disease, magical water that increases one's lifespan, unimaginable riches, and technology that resembles what we now call airplanes and submarines. Academics explain that Bacon's The New Atlantis was intended to be a critique of his current time period and a vision of his hope for the new world, a brand new world with religious freedom, no slavery, and separation of church and state. While it's widely acknowledged that The New Atlantis is a fictional novel, not everyone got the memo. In the coming years, some readers would come to believe that Bacon's account was actually more fact than fiction. The prominent historian and archaeologist Charles Etienne Brasseur d'Uberbeau was one of these men. In the mid-1800s, d'Uberbeau was a leading expert in the field of Mayan history. During his research in Spain in the 1860s, he found an abridged version of Delanda's long-forgotten book, an account of the things of Yucatan, and more importantly to him, Delanda's translation key for the Mayan texts. De Bourbeau believed that the lost island of Atlantis was actually somewhere in the Yucatan, and that Mayan writings held the key to finding it. He spent the rest of his life translating, a term I use loosely, the few surviving Mayan texts using Delanda's key. As we hinted at earlier, they were mostly gibberish, and his translations were not accepted by his academic peers. But Duberbeau stuck by his translation, which was a sort of reverse version of the story Delanda had come up with. His final conclusion was that the island commonly known as Atlantis was actually called Mu, and it existed in the same area of the Yucatan where the Maya had lived. During ancient times, a massive flood drove them out and they sailed to Egypt, where they began the ancient Egyptian civilization. De Bourbeau's ideas would inspire many others to believe that when Plato said Atlantis was outside of the Pillars of Heracles, he didn't mean barely outside, he meant across the entire Atlantic Ocean. 
while Delanda, Sir Francis Bacon, and Brasseur Duberbo all helped keep the Atlantis legend alive throughout history, perhaps no one has had a greater influence on Atlantis conspiracy theories than Ignatius Donnelly. All of the previous men were accomplished in their fields of study, outside of what they had to say about Atlantis. This was not true for Ignatius Donnelly. In 1857, Donnelly and his wife left their home in Pennsylvania to start a cooperative farming community in Minnesota. He and his partners built communal homes, a hotel, and a newspaper office. But that same year, a financial panic hit the United States and the new community collapsed before it even got off the ground. After that failure, Donnelly decided to enter politics. After he was elected to Congress in 1863, he became a vocal supporter of highly unpopular ideas like women's suffrage and abolitionism. His efforts were spectacularly unsuccessful, and in the next election in 1869, he was voted out of office. He went back to his failed Minnesota commune and wrote, quote, All my hopes are gone, and the future settles down upon me dark and gloomy indeed, end quote. But during his time in Washington, D.C., Donnelly had had access to the Library of Congress. He was an avid reader, and by the end of his tenure, he had a favorite subject, Atlantis. In 1882, he wrote his book, Atlantis, The Antediluvian World. It should be mentioned that Jules Verne's novel, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, came out in 1870, 12 years before Donnelly published his work, and there's a strong likelihood that Donnelly had read it. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is an adventure story where the characters briefly visit the lost city of Atlantis. While it's just a small mention, it brought Atlantis back into popular culture. So when Donnelly came out with his book on Atlantis, the public was primed to embrace it. In other words, it was clever marketing. Donnelly begins his book by boldly and clearly stating that Plato's story about Atlantis should be taken as fact. He also adamantly states that Atlantis is somewhere near the Americas. Donnelly further describes Atlantis as a utopia with an advanced language and technologies and claims that it was the location of the Garden of Eden. He explains that the reason most civilizations around the world have a flood story within the annals of their mythology is because all cultures originated from Atlantis. The people that survived the flood left and started cultures in Egypt, Europe, and Israel. Donnelly is the first to use scientific evidence to argue that Atlantis is real. In the early 1870s, the U.S. Coast Guard had just discovered that the Gulf Stream in the North Atlantic flowed in a clockwise circular motion. Scientists had also discovered a large volcanic mountain range under this part of the ocean. Donnelly argued that the mountains were the same ones that had once protected the center of Atlantis. The Gulf Stream flowed circularly because for so many years it had circled the now sunken island. The impact of Donnelly's book was intense. The public absolutely adored it, and Donnelly was finally receiving positive attention. In the 1870s, a British cabinet member even wanted to put together a task force to find Atlantis. The scientific community wasn't quite as on board. 
Donnelly sent a copy to Charles Darwin, who responded with skepticism. The sort of hyperdiffusionism Donnelly and his theoretical predecessors advocated didn't quite line up with the research Darwin had done on evolution. Nevertheless, Donnelly clung to his ideas. Thanks to his book, Atlantis had rocketed from relative obscurity to the forefront of the popular imagination. And even if scientists and historians weren't on his side, a lineage of amateur archaeologists believed they could find Atlantis and prove the naysayers wrong. Coming up, we'll talk about the archaeological find in 1872 that encouraged theorists to believe that Atlantis could actually be found. Now, back to the story. In 1872, newspapers all over the world reported that amateur archaeologist Heinrich Schliemann had found the legendary city of Troy immortalized in the ancient poems The Iliad and The Odyssey. In The Iliad, the abduction of the beautiful Helen launches a war between Troy and Sparta, and this conflict, which became known as the Trojan War, was purported to happen in around the 12th century BC. The ancient Greeks seemed to believe the story was true, but by the 19th century, historians viewed Troy similarly to how they viewed Atlantis, as an engaging myth that may or may not have a historical basis. George Grote, a trusted classical historian in the 19th century who wrote the massive work, The History of Greece, called Troy a legend. He and most archeologists of his time believed that these ancient poems which contained magical elements and had been passed down through history orally, could not be trusted to give accurate historical information. But some amateur archaeologists, by which we mean hobbyists with no formal qualifications and too much money and time on their hands, maintained Troy was real. Among them was a German businessman named Heinrich Schliemann. In 1871, Schliemann used geographical clues from Homer's story to hypothesize that the small village of Hisserlik, Turkey, was the location of ancient Troy. Schliemann hired local workmen to excavate near the village. Underneath the layers of hard rock, they found ruins of homes, some golden objects, and remnants of a wall that would have once surrounded the ruined city. In 1872, Schliemann declared that he had discovered the remains of Troy. Professional archaeologists weren't quick to support this claim, but his announcement gave hope to his fellow amateur archaeologists. Perhaps their efforts to find so-called mythical ancient cities were not in vain. After his discoveries in Turkey, Schliemann looked towards Mycenae, Greece, to search for the palace of King Agamemnon. In 1876, he found what he claimed was the tomb of Agamemnon. The find was the largest beehive tomb ever discovered. Inside were ancient skeletons and a burial mask that Schliemann labeled the mask of Agamemnon. It's important to note that Schliemann was the only one declaring that these ancient artifacts were from the heroes of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Seasoned archaeologists treated his claims with skepticism. When carbon dating was introduced in 1946, archaeologists took a look at the artifacts Schliemann had uncovered in Turkey six decades earlier. 
They realized the artifacts were actually older than the era when the Trojan Wars are thought to have taken place. The site Schliemann called the Tomb of Agamemnon dated to 1250 BC, which was about 300 years earlier than when King Agamemnon is thought to have reigned. In an interesting twist, this didn't lead the archaeologist to conclude that Schliemann was wrong about the location of Troy. Schliemann was, as we noted, an amateur, and he employed excavation techniques that would make professionals cringe, like using dynamite to blast through layers of rock. It's presumed that Schliemann accidentally blasted too deep into the rock, blew up the layer of the ruins that would have belonged to Homer's Troy, and unearthed artifacts from a much older era instead. Whatever Schliemann found, his excavations were an exciting Bronze Age find for archaeologists. He also provided ancient texts with more historical weight and opened up archaeologists to the idea that these texts could help lead to excavation sites. And it gave amateur archaeologists everywhere the hope that they could make the next great discovery. Schliemann defied academics and found Troy, so why couldn't they do the same with Atlantis? Twenty years later, in 1900, another major excavation hit the headlines. Arthur Evans was an amateur archaeologist with a deep knowledge of pre-alphabetic writing, and he was chasing another Greek myth, that of King Minos. In Greek mythology, King Minos was the son of Zeus and ruled Crete from the ancient city of Gnosis. The myth claimed Minos kept a terrifying half-man, half-bull monster called the Minotaur in a maze under the palace. King Minos kept the Minotaur alive by feeding him Athenian youth, which eventually compelled the disgruntled Athenians to murder him. Like Schliemann before him, Arthur Evans believed that the myth of King Minos was based in historical fact and that he could find the ruins of Gnosis using details from the story. In early spring 1900, Evans used his inheritance to begin digging on the north-central coast of Crete, near the city of Heracleion. In just a little over a week, the excavators had already unearthed a fully preserved clay tablet with writing in an unidentified ancient script, which Evans named Linear B. By the end of the dig, they had thousands of these tablets. The new and unidentified written language caused Evans to surmise that the ancient people who had inhabited Heracleion were a different civilization from the people who had lived in the city Schliemann had dug up in Mycenae. Evans called the people the Minoans. Modern-day archaeologists have confirmed that the Minoans were a distinct culture that lived from 2700 to 1100 BC in Crete and the surrounding islands. In addition to the clay tablets, Evans also found a massive 3,500-year-old multi-story palace decorated with the symbol of the bull everywhere. The palace had a maze-like quality to it, with over a thousand rooms, which is not unlike the descriptions of the labyrinth under King Minos's palace. Because of these similarities, in 1900, Evans announced to the press that the ancient city of Gnosis had been found. While there's still a debate about if this was actually the mythical King Minos palace, it's considered an important archaeological find. There is another important detail to mention about the site. 
Throughout the ruins, there were signs of a natural disaster, likely an earthquake that had destroyed the entire city. A prosperous island city destroyed overnight in a sudden natural disaster? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It certainly does. In 1913, archaeologist K.T. Frost theorized that Plato's story of Atlantis was actually true to a point. The historian Solon was told the story he recounted from the Egyptian priests, but he misinterpreted it. The place Plato ended up calling Atlantis was actually Gnosis. Frost explains that pottery from this Minoan civilization had been found in Egypt, evidence of trade between the two ancient nations. There was also art on the Egyptian temples depicting visitors in loincloths, bringing the Egyptians bull-themed gifts. The Egyptians would have known and been affected by Gnosis's destruction, and much of the Atlantis theory matches what archaeologists believe happened to Gnosis. It's not that far of a stretch to believe they are the same story, but with a country given a different name. But it's not the only contender for the inspiration for the Atlantis myth. About 40 years later, another potential candidate was uncovered. In the 1930s, Greek archaeologist Spiridon Marinatos was studying the volcano Thera on the Greek island of Santorini, only 70 miles away from Crete. Marinatos theorized that the volcano had a massive explosion around 1500 BC, which was so strong it caused the entire island to collapse in on itself. This also happens to be right around the time that the Minoan Empire crumbled. Marinatos believed the volcano Thera's collapse caused tidal waves to surge across the Mediterranean at over 200 miles per hour, powerful enough to destroy Crete's coastal city of Gnosis. Strong evidence that Gnosis's destruction by flood was the inspiration for the Atlantis story. Another earthquake hit Thera in 1956, which created large cracks through the rock layers. It was there that geologist Angelos Galanopoulos found human remains from between 1510 and 1310 BC, around the same time Marinatos theorized the volcano had massively erupted. Galanopoulos thought this solidified the theory that the Atlantis story was inspired by Thera's explosion, but he theorized that the basis for the island of Atlantis was Santorini, not Crete. To solidify his theory, he had to explain some discrepancies. Santorini is much smaller than dimensions that Plato gives for Atlantis, and the 1500 BC Thera eruption occurred much later than the 9500 BC date Plato gives for the island's destruction. Galanopoulos created a simple solution to solve both of these problems. He surmised that Solon, when looking at the ancient Egyptian writing, had misinterpreted the Egyptian hieroglyphic 100 for 1000. Divide all of Plato's numbers in the story by 100, and Atlantis fell 900 years before Solon's time, not 9000, in around 1500 BC. The dimensions of Atlantis become 23 square miles, close to the 29.4 square miles of Santorini. In 1967, Marinatos explored the island further, and he found a field covered in volcanic ash close to the village of Akrotiki. He began excavation, and within days, 
they began to uncover ancient ruins from the Bronze Age, roughly between 3300 BC to 1200 BC. What they found was magnificent, with over 30 complete buildings from the ancient city, Minoan pottery, and intricate wall paintings. In 1967, another leader of the excavation, American researcher James Maver, went back to the U.S. and took credit for discovering Atlantis, much to the delight of the press. Marinatos, however, never made the same proclamation. Some theorists believe this is where the search for Atlantis ends, that the island of Santorini once held the ancient city of Atlantis. However, one more excavation in 2000 would create another wrinkle in the Atlantis legend. The lost city of Heliki, unlike Atlantis, is mentioned quite substantially throughout ancient oral and written history. If it was ever found, archaeologists believed it would provide historians with a great understanding of ancient culture. Yet despite all of its historical references, the physical clues to its location were sparse, and all searches for the city failed. Dr. Dora Kostanopolo realized that the problem was with the way the words in the historical text were interpreted. Katsinopolo realized that the ferrymen frequently mentioned in Heliki's history were not traveling across a gulf, but a sort of lake or lagoon that was connected to the sea. This meant Heliki had to be a bit more north and under solid land instead of underwater, where archaeologists had been searching. She was right. In 2000, Katsinopolo found Heliki. The expedition also found signs that the city had been destroyed by a massive earthquake in 373 BC, during Plato's lifetime. Plato certainly would have heard about the Heliki, a city that was destroyed by a natural disaster overnight. Academics contend that Plato had based Atlantis on Heliki, using a recent event that all of his students would be familiar with as a tool for his philosophical allegory. But some argue that if that's the case, why isn't a volcanic eruption mentioned in the legend? Plato talks of a flood and earthquakes, but no ash or loud sounds. If he was purposely imitating the story of Heliki, why wouldn't he include the main distinguishing event, the eruption? Again, academics maintain that the details about Atlantis are fictionalized, as it was intended to be read as an allegory, not a historical account. But there are still some believers that use the historical discrepancies in the text to maintain that Atlantis isn't just a myth based on Heliki or Santorini or Gnosis. The real Atlantis is still out there, lost, waiting to be found. Next week, we'll be exploring some conspiracy theories surrounding the mysterious lost city of Atlantis, whether it was real, where it might be, and what we could hope to find there. We'll start simple with our first conspiracy theory. Was Atlantis a real island, not in Greece or the Americas, but off the coast of Spain? Our second theory centers on the claims of American psychic and mystic Edgar Cayce, who believed all human life originated on the lost continent of Atlantis, including the first incarnation of Jesus Christ. Casey prophesied that Atlantis would rise again out of the Atlantic Ocean in the year 1968. Conspiracy theory number three comes from an occultist named Madame Blavatsky, 
who claimed Atlantis was the ancient home of a race of supermen called the Aryans. Their civilization was destroyed by human-animal hybrids who were bred using black magic. This idea of an ancient superior race found some notable supporters in Nazi Germany, including SS leader Heinrich Himmler, who led a Nazi expedition to find the lost city of Atlantis. Whether this theory is true or not, it had some serious real-world consequences. Join us next week as we travel the globe searching for the truth about Atlantis. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Conspiracy Theories is written by Margot Newcomer and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 